This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. All right. Welcome to Tax Tuesday. My name is Toby Mathis, and I got Jeff Webb here. Got Jeff Webb here. (laughs) It's been a minute. So glad to have Jeff back. And if you are looking for Tax Tuesday, you're in the right place. We're going to let everybody fall in here for a second because... We stream, we're on multiple platforms, but we're also on YouTube. I can see people dumping in and it just keeps going up and up and up and up and up. When it stops, then I I quit pontificating. Anyway, so we are bringing tax knowledge to the masses. If you've not been to a Tax Tuesday, I'll give you guys some ground rules. It's real simple. You ask your questions via the Q&A feature. And when I say a question, if I ask you something like, hey, where are you from? Then you could put that in chat. But if you say, hey, I'm thinking of selling my house and I've owned it for three years, what's the capital gain exclusion if I'm single? Then you put that in the Q&A and you could ask whatever you want of our folks. If it gets too crazy and too detailed, we're going to say, hey, become a platinum. It's 35 bucks a month. Come on. And we can answer it. And then it'll live forever in your portal so we can do that. So uh, there we go. Let's see. In the part of color that makes you think of Jen. But hey. We got people all over the place. There's Sherry. We got a whole bunch of friends in here. Like every time I see Faith is in the house. There's names that I see over and over again, and I uh, love to see it. So let me know where you guys are from. If you're uh, in a particular state, and I don't mean like, hey, I'm 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 blasted. I've been drinking all afternoon type of state. Tell me uh, where you're at. There's a Philly. There's Miami. You guys are doing great. Oahu, jealous. New Jersey. Mm. I grew up in Philly, so I like I hate anybody from New York and New Jersey. I don't know what it is. We just give you guys the stink eye. It wasn't Trenton, was it? It wasn't Trenton, no. I grew up just outside of Philly. D.C., uh, there we go, Virginia suburbs, Aloha from Ua Beach. You know, that's on Oahu, right? Or Iwa, Iwa Beach? Yeah, that's Oahu. Got a whole bunch of clients over on Oahu. I love that area. I actually crashed a big old canoe, one of those big outriggers. Mm-hmm. And kind of poly, just like literally just drilled into it. There's Tyro from Savannah. I was just in Savannah, Tyro. Love it. I was down on the riverfront at the JW, which may as well be a museum. It's the most amazing hotel. If you guys ever get a chance to go to Savannah, I would definitely recommend it. And if you get a chance to go to Savannah, stay stay down by the river and stay at the JW. It's amazing. It's like this billionaire took it up and it's like there's a dinosaur in there. There's tons and tons. Of, it may as well be a museum. It just looks absolutely gorgeous. There's my Savannah pitch. I used to own property in Savannah, but I sold it all. But I'm looking again. And here is uh, Jeff. And Jeff, if you want to share what's what you've been doing, because there's some folks saying you look a little skinnier. <clears throat> yeah, I've had some health issues and been going through some treatment, not shock treatment. Um, is it, is it? Yeah, about uh, six months ago or so, uh, my health declined dramatically. Mm-hmm. And uh, turns out I had colon cancer. But so you're fighting it like a yeah, it, it's fine. And uh, treatment comes with a really cool fanny pack. So we're just glad to have Jeff back. We're going to give him something to do because you you did kilo today, didn't you? Yep. Yeah. And I and I got more in here. There we go. Jeff's a trooper. We're going to stand by him this whole time. Anytime he wants to come back to Tax Tuesday, he's invited. And if you guys would do your little prayers for. Look, you already have people that had ca- colon cancer a year ago. Not fun, but you're getting through it. 
And David's another person I recognize. Gosh, bless it. I didn't know you were going through that, sir, because we would have certainly sent some prayers out to you guys. I believe in that stuff. You guys may not. Can I do a quick soapbox? Yep. So if you are scheduled or should be scheduled for your prostate exam, your colonoscopy, your mammogram, your pap smear, on and on your blood work, please get it done. The sooner they catch some of the stuff, the better off you are. Yep. They're not fun. No. I just had my colonoscopy uh, last week, week before last. Yeah. It was so exciting. I slept through it. And uh, anyway. Almost the worst part is preparing for it. Yeah. You have two days. I I had the pills. I didn't have the stuff you had to drink. And if everybody's grossed out by this, don't be. If you catch it early, you're good. So that's our public service announcement. But personally, it's just not the same not having Jeff here. So it's really cool. And uh, everything's clear for David. So he got through it. So you will too. Yep. And we're going to get going. All right. Since we're talking taxes, we have to do it. We got to go into the taxes. All right. I think most people have heard of 1031 exchanges and the associated tax deferral benefits, but I recently became aware of section 721 exchanges. Can you discuss the similarities and differences between those two options? So we will answer that. Again, if this is your first time, we're going to read through a bunch of questions, and then we are going to answer them uh, live. You guys can put stuff into chat, but if you have questions on your stuff, put it into the Q&A. I have a ton of staff on right now. i got Andrew, Jennifer, Matthew, Dana, Dutch. I can't. I have to scroll. Tanya, Sergey, Ross, Jared, Elliot, Troy. I got CPAs. I got attorneys. We got all sorts of people there to answer your questions. And guess what? This is the only time you get to ask a question of an attorney or a CPA where they don't send you a bill. We just answer it and make sure that uh, we're doing our very best to to give you. Please be patient with us because there's always hundreds of people on, if not over a thousand. And uh, we bring a big old staff here to answer your questions. We'll get through it and make sure that, uh, uh, that we're taking care of you so that you can demystify demystify mm-hmm. the tax world shouldn't be something that causes you stress. All right. What is the tax benefit of a foundation versus a nonprofit organization? Interesting question. We'll answer that. I have two houses I'm selling this year and or at the same time. Both were residents for two years out of the last five consecutively. Explanation point. All right. I've just lived in the latest house for the last two years as I've been preparing both to sell Will I have a problem claiming both of them as residents to the last five years since I'm selling them at the same time? We will answer that. But the answer is yes, don't do it, but we'll explain. All right. So if you're listening out there, keep your, keep your ears open for that one. All right. I am planning to follow your renting out stock advice in selling covered call options. We'd like to be a stock market landlord in our world. The earning of that deal will be used to buy more stock from the same company. How, what is the tax situation here? how much tax has to be paid and when. Other one, how are stock options taxed? Talk about an open-ended question. We'll answer that one too. I have an LLC taxed as an S-corp with a brokerage account. Can the profit or loss from the active stock trading business reported as business income loss or capital gains loss? Is there anything similar to trader status marked to market for an S-corp? Good question, and we'll get there. We'll answer that one too. I have a second home property that we are renting as a STR, short-term rental. That means like an Airbnb. It is titled under a Wyoming statutory trust, and we are already paying property taxes. Does a 
571L form business property tax still apply to us? That's a very specific question to California, by the way, guys. So we'll answer that uh, as well. Who can qualify for an HSA? I'm active duty military member and I have been told I don't qualify. However, my wife still has co-pays based on her plan and I'll have to pay co-pays once I retire. I have an HSA with my W-2 job that I'm maxing out. Can I open an additional HSA with my LLC business? Good questions. We're going to answer them all. And then here's the last one. Anderson made me an entity as a C-Corp. Boom, you're an entity. I couldn't help that. Did you? You're a C-Corp. I don't feel like a C-Corp. Right. Anderson made me an entity as a C-Corp. I always put monthly money in from my personal account to pay monthly business expenses. And initially, in order to open my business account, I put a lump sum of $7,000 in as startup money funded. Initial the account by a loan from me to the business promissory note or as stock. I really don't know what would be categorized as. I don't understand that part anyway. That's why you have bookkeepers. Anyway, I made $4,000 and have to take out the initial $7,000 startup money from the C-Corp to account for personal need. Having the $4,000 I made still in the account, how do I legally and tax-friendly take the $7,000 back that I need for my personal reimbursement? Okay, we'll get into all that. We'll break it down, the good, the bad, and the ugly on all of those. But before you do that, if you're already on YouTube, you're probably already seeing you could just subscribe to my page and you can continue to get all of the recordings of the Tax Tuesdays. This is episode, I believe it's 195. So we're getting close to the big 200, but we do these every other week. Been doing them for a long time. I don't know how many years that is, but it's a lot. And uh, we're just going to keep doing them because we enjoy it. And, uh, and it's, we always get positive feedback because people tend to be appreciative of folks that don't mess around and just answer their questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you like this type of information, I would encourage you to subscribe to the YouTube channel, and then you'll be notified whenever new things come out. There's a fancy link there, aba.link YouTube forward slash YouTube. And I like the YouTube stuff. I don't know about you guys. It's kind of fun. And, uh, I like going out and seeing what everybody else says too. So I'm not just a content creator. I like to see what everybody else out there thinks. Okay. I think that most people have heard of 1031 exchanges and the associated tax deferral benefits, but I recently became aware of section 721 exchanges. Can you discuss the similarities and differences between these two options? Well, let's start with a brief exp explanation of 1031. 1031 exchange means I can sell a property through a qualified intermediary and replace it with another profit as long as I meet certain requirements. And I won't go into all those requirements unless you want to. Well, I can't help myself usually, you know that. <laughs> you just set me up. A 721 is similar. It has the same effect as that uh, you, don't, you don't pay tax on the, on the sale, but you're not exchanging one property for another property. You're exchanging one property for an interest in a partnership or some other type of entity a real estate interest mm -hmm. where you don't actually own the property directly. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess you can do the, the biggest difference here is 721. I'm contributing something that I'm leaving for a business interest and then I'm done. Like I can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as, Hey, I'm going to 721 again. You're going from, Hey, I sold some real estate and I have some capital gains. And I want to defer it. I believe you still have to use an intermediary, but I'm placing it into 
a business vehicle like a partnership, master partnership that may own pieces of a real estate investment trust. Usually that's what you're doing. You're saying, I'm done with my private real estate and I'm going to get into a REIT and uh, or Delaware statutory trust. I'm going into a vehicle, but you're done once you get into that vehicle. Whereas a 1031, I get 1031, I could sell one property, buy 10, sell those 10, buy one, as long as it's real estate, do it again, buy land, I could buy an apartment complex, I could buy a bunch of single families, I could do whatever I want as long as it's real estate of equal or greater value. And I could just keep doing that over and over and over again. 721, it's a tax-free exchange, but it's a one and done. That's my understanding. Yep. Anybody out there ever do a 721 exchange? Anybody do that? Put it in chat. If you've ever done a 721 exchange, you'll oftentimes hear them referred to as an upread, right? You'll mm-hmm. see, you'll call it a, because you're going into a partnership that goes into a REIT. Generally, at least that's my neophyte understanding. Has anybody ever done one? I don't see anybody yet. Sometimes it takes a second on the chat, but we'll see. We'll, we'll I'll watch that. Nope. Nope. So they're rare, <laughs> just like my steak. All right. What is the two? We'll see if anybody else pops on there. And we'll go back to that. A bunch of no's now. Yeah. I mean, they're just, I always kind of think about it. Like you're creating a, uh, a very specialized vehicle for folks that want a 1031 out. And most of my, our clients, like we're private investors. If we want a 1031, we will. And, or we'll do a lazy man's 1031. Sounds sexist, right? A lazy persons. Yeah, somebody says qualified opportunity funds are one and done too. I always thought those were kind of a red herring. I know a lot of people pitched as qualified opportunity funds. They were neat. If you were going to do a regular business, but on the real estate side, I was always like, ah, I don't want to get stuck in something for 10 years, much longer, depending on what your deferral period is. You could be in those things for 15 years. And I preferred not to be. Anyway, I'm not going to keep pontificating. Let's jump back into tax benefits of a foundation versus a nonprofit organization. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to approach this a different way. It's not so much the benefits of a foundation versus a nonprofit. A foundation is a nonprofit. Exactamundo. What it is not is a public charity. Mm-hmm. So there's actually, if you don't qualify to be a public charity, you're automatically going to be a foundation. And we see that sometimes where people aren't getting public support for their public charity, then they default back to the foundation status. Mm-hmm. You still get the same deduction for your contributions. Uh, there is the possibility of a tax if you're not distributing out enough of your money. So a foundation distributes to other charities. So there's there's one other thing you could stick there, a private operating oh, yeah. foundation, which is now they don't have to give anything. But yeah, the easiest way to think about a foundation and non in a 501c3 charitable organization that's a public charity is the public charity does stuff. A private foundation funds stuff, doesn't do anything. It just gives money out. They got to give uh, 5% a year, right? Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up operating foundations because a good example is you're running an animal shelter. It's an operating foundation. You have operating expenses, but you're contributing all your money to that. So that works very similar to a nonprofit. Yep. Uh, public charity. Public charity does stuff for the public and gets its support from the public. You can get away with not doing that for about six years and then it switches mm-hmm. where you really got to pay attention to it. Although I've never seen anybody reclassified. I know Kareem did once, but uh, he he worked for the IRS. So, but uh, I've always kind of looked at it and said, hey, if you're going to do something for the public and you're going to do nice things, you're not going to have to give away money. You're either going to be a private operating foundation or you're going to be a a public charity. What's the big difference? 
I can give 60% of my AGI in cash to a, uh-huh. to a charity, public charity, whereas I'm limited to deduct uh, 30% to a private foundation. I can give up to 30% of my adjusted gross income in appreciated assets like real estate or stock versus I could give up to 20% of my adjusted gross income if it's a private foundation. So um, Excellent point. Somebody says, did I see that ABA recommends a 501c3 own properties? No, not not really, Jim. What you see is that a lot of property qualifies as charitable activities. So like residential mm-hmm. assisted living, transitional housing, shared housing. I do housing for elderly folks where we're, we're, below, we're below market. So like sometimes we just give people houses and that would be imputed income to me if, it, if I did it in the for-profit realm. So I give them away, but that's me. If it's somebody who's running a residential assisted living, the activity qualifies as a charitable activity, but we usually have the houses and the real estate owned in a for-profit and then it leases to the nonprofit. So you'll see it sometimes, especially it depends on what you're doing, but I like, I like not having to pay property taxes if I'm not making money on the property. You know what I mean? So if I'm doing uh, veterans housing. And if you guys don't know who I am or anything like that, I'm just been doing this for 26 years, but I have 400 some properties and I like to give some of them that have real, like I've already depreciated. I get a tax deduction when I give those away and I usually give them away to charity. And so if you're doing that for other people, you don't need the punch in the gut when the IRS comes in and says, you need to pay tax on that and you have to pay the property taxes. So if you're 501c3, you can move for an exemption of the county property taxes, the real estate taxes, and then you don't have to worry about it. But it's not my property anymore either. It's owned by a charity and the charity is not owned by me. It's just controlled by me and it's there for the public benefit. So there's a lot of situations. When we do recovery housing, that's a beautiful situation where you can have a charity involved and at least certify the house as like a there's something called the National Alliance of Recovery Residences that gives a certification for homes. You could do something like that and you could still own the home in a for-profit realm, but go get money from municipalities, go get grants, go get money like that. And uh, Toby, I'm looking for my first recovery house. Be happy to take one off your hands. Tracy, you got to go out there and get that done. We'll show you how to do it. And actually on uh, the YouTube, I just, I just had Frank and Sherry Candelario, two of my favorite people who do recovery houses. And uh, they, we just did a really cool uh, video on that. So if you guys want to learn that stuff, I will show you all day long, show you all day long. And uh, somebody says, I've been working with them too. Yep. They're really great people. And uh, Michelle Wheeler, another great gal. She's gone out there. I think she's got 10 and uh, was getting grants, $75,000 per home and about a thousand bucks per bed, 10 beds per home. So yeah, I'm not, not misstating that. I think she gets about $10,000 a month to run a recovery home. So like there's, there's public money is available, but you got to look, you got to have the charity in those situations. You can't do that simply private, but you can collect the money through the charity and then pay a for-profit. So you can actually just use it as a vehicle to allow. So you can absolutely jump in there. The video that I did with Frank and Sherry was in the last couple of weeks. Uh, so check out the YouTube. You'll see it in there. All right. I have two houses I'm selling this year and or at the same time. Both were residents for two years out of the last five years consecutive. They're, they're talking about a section 121 exclusion. Mm-hmm. That's when you sell a house, you don't have to pay capital gains. I have just lived in the latest house for the last two years and I've been preparing both to sell. Will I have a problem claiming both of them as residents two of the last five years since I'm selling them at the same time? What do you think? 
Well, we're going to start off assuming that each of these houses were your primary residence consecutively. So one stop being the primary residence, even though you didn't sell it, that has its own issues. And then the second one became your primary residence. So yes, you can. You have to have lived in this house, primary residence, for two of the last five years. Mm-hmm. But it's only good for one house. Now, this whole thing resets in another two years. So let me just make sure I'm distilling the wisdom that you're, you're, you're spewing. Two out of the last five years as a primary residence. Like a lot of people just say, oh, I lived in it two of the last five years. No, it's your primary residence two of the last five years. That's the qualifier. So of the last 60 months, 24 of them, you had to have lived in it as your primary residence. That met, then you can exclude, if you're single, $250,000 of capital gain. If you're married, you can exclude up to $500,000 of capital gain. The rub is you can do this every two years. So there's two out of five and every two years. And if you 1031 and then move into it, it's every five years, right? So like if, if you 1031 into a property and then it became your residence, use it as a primary residence, you can still 121 it. You just have to live in it for five years. Mm-hmm. But in this particular case, do not sell these houses at the same time. What you want to do, what would you say? Well, you want to sell right now the wow. house that you were that was your primary residence longest ago. So the one that you moved into, say, four years ago. Yep. Because clock's ticking on that house. See, when you move out of a house, you basically have three years to sell it without there being any penalty. In other words, I lived in it two of the last five. So let's just do the, let's just, Hey, I, in year one, I lived in it as my primary residence. In year two, I lived in it at my primary residence. I moved into another house. So in year three, I lived in the second house as a primary residence. In year four, I lived in the second house. I have three years from the date that I moved out of that first house to sell it in order to meet the two out of the five-year test. So what Jeff's saying is the one that you've lived in that was your primary residence a couple of years ago, you need to sell that one because you have one year to sell it. Mm-hmm. Then what would we do with the house that I'm living in now? Hey, I don't want to live there anymore. My suggestion is to turn it into some type of rental, Mm -hmm. either long-term. I prefer long-term in this case. Because you have three years you can rent it before you lose the 121 exclusion. I prefer to rent it for at least two years because you need the clock to tick for that long anyway. You don't want to rent it so long, though, that you can't sell it timely, so... And you will have some depreciation recapture that you may get taxed on. We're not talking about a lot of money. It's money you just deducted in the previous two years. Yeah. And here's the thing. We also should look at how much tax liability. Like if you're looking at selling two houses, one of them has $250,000 again, and the other one has 10,000, then we're going to go right to the 250. Like, let's make sure we sell that one first, you know, because that's going to be your biggest bang for your buck. You have a, you have $10,000 again, you're not crying. Right. Worst case scenario, if it's long term gain, you're talking about net investment. Well, it's net investment income tax, right? You'd still mm-hmm. get hit on your house. So you're looking at 23.8% federal tax tops if you're in the top bracket. So you're a rich guy and you're making over 600 grand married. You sell it. Nobody's crying for you if you have to pay 2,400 bucks in tax on that one. But if it's a big, like, hey, half a million dollars a gain and you, and you can avoid it, then we want to make sure that we're capturing that one. So there is that factor. So I want to throw one more in. If your adjusted gross income is below, say, $85,000 and you're married, filing joint. Zero percent tax bracket anyway. Then I dump both houses now. Yep. 
so it's a little bit of a math equation, but if you have two houses and you're thinking of selling them and they both have gain, piece them out. Yeah. Do what definitely. Jeff just said. Sell the one that you have the least amount of time uh, to sell, that one that, that could be done in a year. And then the second one, hang on, rent it out for a few years. Tops, you could rent it out up to three years and uh, and then sell it. And you could use your 121 exclusion. And you can 121 and 1031 exchange. <laughs> like you could do those together. Mm-hmm. So you could actually use up your your 121. And if I moved out of the house, let's say that it, it appreciates. Let's say you're one of those guys that's in Miami or something. You're like, oh my God, but my house is going to go up another million bucks. If you make it into a rental, then we can actually use your 121 exclusion and 1031 that property into another. And it steps your basis up for depreciation and everything yep. else. You'll get a big benefit out of it. And if that sounds like Greek, it's all right. You stick with us. We're going to teach you that language. All right. What else we got? Somebody says late to the party. What is the 121 exclusion? 121 is when you can avoid 250 of capital gain when you sell a home if you're single. 250, or excuse me, uh, 500,000 if you're married. And uh, you just had to live in it two of the last five years as your primary residence. So you're selling a house. There we go. Perfect. All right. I am planning to follow your renting out stock advice and selling covered call options. The earnings of that deal will be used to buy more stock from the same company. How is the tax situation here? How much tax has to be paid and when, Jeff Rowe? So this is uh, one of those it depends answers. So accounts. <clears throat> I write a covered call. It never gets exercised. Mm-hmm. That is short-term capital gains me, however much I've received. And it's taxed when it expires, not when you, you write it. If you sell a leap, you could actually end up in a long-term capital gain. True. But it's, you're holding, it's capital assets. So when you sell it, and this is going to go to the next question, because I think the next one is about how they're taxed. But let's say that I sell options on a stock and they're for a month out. I'm going to have a taxable event within the next month. They're either going to expire worthless and I get to keep the money. That's the taxable event when mm-hmm. they expired. Somebody's going to call me out, in which case it's going to get added to basis, right? Yeah. And or I just sell it and I'm like, oh, it's become worthless and I'm going to sell it, in which case I'm taxed the day that I sell it only on the gain that I get, you know, the, the money I got to keep. In any of those cases, we're talking about capital gain, capital gain. That's what it is. So whenever you have options, you get the money now and you're going to have a taxable event at some point in the future. If you're doing them a year out, like you're selling leaps, then it's whenever it's exercised or expires, let's say that it expires a year and a half from now, you're going to have long-term. I believe it's going to be long-term capital gains. I say that like, I'm like, I think it is. Is it? Think it's long-term? Yeah. If, if you're exchanging your stock because they're exercising the option, whoever bought your option, then it's going to be your, your gain or loss. It's going to depend on the stock, like you said. Yep. I'm sorry. A, a leap is a long-term option. So so Jim, if I have, uh, let's say Coca-Cola and it's at 60 bucks and I sell a $70 leap, that's exercisable, not this June, but next June. So it's a year and some days and Coca-Cola never gets to that point. Coca-Cola stays at 60 bucks. So in a sideways market, these are our friends. You get to keep that. You've had that money the whole year. You weren't taxed on it. And then it expires worthless a year, uh, over a year ago. And, uh, then I would have the tax hit at that point. If it gets exercised, or at least somebody's uh, pointing out correctly, if it gets exercised, then it would, you know, early, like let's say I, I sell that and then in two months from now, they, they, 
it gets exercised and they buy my my stock it's that $65 then i would have a taxable event at that point the date that it gets exercised so it, it works great did you say that a lien was like an option no I don't think I did. Did I say a lien was like an option? No, you said a leap is an option. Yeah, a leap is an option. There we go. Sorry. L-E-A-P. Yep. That's a long-term option. So whenever you hear somebody say, I invest in leaps or I sell leaps, what they're saying is, hey, I'm really, really lazy about buying stuff in the short term. I'm not I'm not selling an option that expires in two weeks or a week. And some of you guys do it like within days because you guys are really smart. <clears throat> and you love looking at this stuff. I am the laziest trader on the planet. I buy stuff and then I immediately sell an option on it. And I should roll out of these most of the time. I'm just a horrible person, but I have a bunch of money managers. They actually pay attention to it. But I always find out that, oh, I made some money on some stock. Dang it. Taxable event. It's like, okay, it's all right to have some tax. There's some way to offset it. You just got to have a little plan. Where yeah. would it be a good place for people to learn about leaps and options and maybe infinity investing? Infinity investing. You should come visit us at infinityinvesting.com. We have a free membership that you can go in there and you can learn all about this stuff. It's inv infinityinvesting.com. I wrote a book on it and I don't have an original idea in my head. I'll just be real straight up with you. I just steal everything from the clients that do well. They're smart. I just steal their stuff. Like I'm looking over the shoulder, like, hey, that was really smart. What did you do? That's really good idea. Let me regurgitate it to somebody else. And then, <clears throat> yay, that's good. If I see it repeated a hundred times, like we do over 10,000 tax returns here, we can see who's doing well. And we can actually say, hey, guess what? These people over here are always killing it. Market's going up, they're killing it. Market's going down, they're killing it. They make money when there's a recession, great. And they all have the same uh, earmarks. Like it's all the same stuff. Somebody says, don't look over, Sherry. I'm going to look over your shoulder. And I'm just going to do the opposite of everything. You, I'm just kidding. That's Michael. I do the opposite. Of, and Michael's like, this is a great stock. I'm selling puts on that puppy, <laughs> man. I'm going you know, to short it. All right. How are stock options taxed? Well, we pretty much talk regular stock options to death. So. Yeah. Maybe from the point of view of employee stock options. Well, okay. Regular stock options, expiration, they're sold, mm -hmm. you're exercised. That's it. That's when they're taxed. So I can make a bunch of money and then there's something that happens in the future. Employee stock options, whole other ballgame. Employee stock options. So there, there's a couple different kinds. There's the ISOs, incentive stock options, which have a very special treatment to them. There's the non-qualified stock options, which you see a lot more often. There's RSUs, restricted stock units, and, and they're all treated slightly different. There's a code section called 83B that lets you predetermine how much tax you're going to pay ahead of time. Uh, you have to recognize a little bit then. You have to recognize a little bit of it at the time of granting. So then we can start talking about vesting. Vesting. When was it granted? When does it? Uh, when are you vested? and so forth. Typically, if you're receiving stock options from your employer, they're going to deal with all the taxes. The non-qualified stock options are going to have withholding. There's a couple different ways to exercise these options. You can either pay for them up front. There's still something to pay for. Or you could sell some of the options that you just got or maybe already holding to pay for the new stock. Mm -hmm. So yes, this is a bit complicated, a bit convoluted. You can get really reamed too in a bad way if you have a vesting and you have stock options that, mm -hmm. that you get taxed on and then the stock takes a dive. 
That's how employees sometimes get scared because they might have a tax bill on something that's not worth the tax payment. That's one of the reasons why I don't like mark to market for all you traders out there, you guys, you crazy traders who want to do mark to market. I remember 1999 and the big correction on Qualcomm and all these people were millionaires one year and then the, the stock just took a dive. All these people that made mark to market elections are having to pay massive tax bills for with the stock that's not worth anything anymore. I just it was just so messed up. I didn't like that. All right. Who's Rickard? Somebody says, what do you guys think of Rickards? R-I-C-K-A-R-D-S. Is it Jim Rickards? I don't know. Do you know Jim Rickards? Mm -hmm. Anybody out there know Jim Rickards? Jim. Must be somebody who's an investment guy. Rickards? Yeah. Rickards, Rickards is a fear monger. There we go. Thank you for not following the mainstream. Sorry. <laughs> I can't help myself. I thought his name was Jim. Uh, what's the mad money guy? Kramer. Jim Kramer. <laughs> Kramer, you do the opposite of whatever he does. You're going to kill it. Somebody says, Rickard's a little doomsday-ish. <laughs> Attorney that worked with the IA. Jim is, Jim is a lawyer who writes books. Is that, what do you guys think of him? See, this is a, we're going to get the fault. We're going to, you guys can't see the feed. CIA. Oh, he worked for the CIA. Uh, yeah, they, they tend to be a little pessimistic. And I never, I, like, I don't know how you can trust anybody that works for the CIA because they literally will tell you that they learn how to deceive everybody. Stansbury. Oh, I've heard of Stansbury. They're actually pretty good. Gold bug, like it's, it's all the game. I think they want to hype us up. There you go. It is all a bit of a game. If you play it like a game, you won't get stressed out. You'll just say, hey, you know what? There's, there's certain rules and I, there's certain things I can do that's going to make it better for me. So uh, somebody says Rickards is an opportunist who is constantly issuing warnings that never take place. It sounds like the guy that does the big short too. He's now shorting Anderson and the world is ending. Troy is not helping. I'm sorry. For, you could always bring this stuff to us. I actually love our group because everybody is so straight up. And uh, they said chicken little. All right. I didn't know. Is, is this one of those guys that still says the world's ending in April, yeah. even though that was a month ago? Yes. Yes. It's all going to black. I hate, you know what? There will be some short-term pain. Where you're going to see it is all these syndicators that were doing apartments. And they're going to get smushed because... They're all, all their loans are resetting. So they, they, they did this whole thing where they're like, ah, we're going to make all this money. And it's really low. It's 3.5% interest. And all these, I remember all these guys, cause I hate debt. So I'm like one of those guys that doesn't like to buy any of my real estate with debt. Oh, you're crazy not to lever. Da, da, da. And I always say like, well, I know I don't remember too many foreclosures in 2008 that didn't have a loan attached to them. Like just, just call me crazy, but I am not a big boom, you see all these folks is just getting kushmushed. So, uh, yeah, so uh, there is going to be pain. There's going to be a lot of pain. And uh, it's just making sure it doesn't happen to you guys. That's what we care about is that that we're safe in our group. All right. Speaking of mark-to-market. I've got an LLC taxed as an S-corp with a brokerage account. Can the profit or loss from the active trading business reported as a business income loss or as I don't know what all this means, but I imagine that they're saying, can it be reported as business income loss or capital gains? Is there anything similar to trader status mark to market for an escort? Jeff? I have not seen anything that says any entity can make a mark to market. Section 475 election. I think it's still going to fall back on the individual. And what I just told somebody in tax who was asking about this is problem with this is you got to meet all the requirements. And we haven't found two courts that agree on what those requirements are. Yep. Well, we, we know that uh, for 
trader status. Here's the thing with trader status. It doesn't exist in the code. So there's no rules. So they had to go to the court and the courts have said consistently, if you have a holding period beyond 30 days, you're not a trader. Number two, you need to trade the majority of the trading days, about 70% is your cutoff line. So if the, if the market is open for 220 days, 70% of those, you got to be trading constantly. It's about 750 trades a year and it's facts and circumstances. So they could try to find a way, but there's folks that traded $15 million and were denied trader status. I just don't go with, with that at all. I avoid trader status. You may as well put a big old bullseye on your forehead if you're going to do that. And I know there's some of you guys that I probably just ticked off because you're like, well, I'm filing as a trader. I use a real simple or uh, a real simple structure to avoid it. I use a partnership and LLC tax as a partnership with the corporation as a general partner or as one of the partners. And then I let the corporation earn its money and write off expenses. And that's part of the partnership agreement. The corporation gets to gets to cover those. It makes its money. If I need to give the corporation more money, I have something called a guaranteed payment to partner because there's no such thing as miscellaneous itemized deductions anymore. They went away with the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. So I don't even mess around with it. At the end of the day, you get the net on your trading account and we don't worry about the losses. Like we're not trying to do a mark to market so you can take ordinary loss in the market. If you're making a mark to market election because you're losing so much money in the market, get out of the market and go do something else. Yeah, I mean, my general opinion is the only only people that benefit from mark to market are people who are bad investors. And that might be a little strong. But. That, that that's mean. But if you're, if, yeah, you're you're writing off ordinary loss. Otherwise, you're going to carry forward capital losses. And I just, I'm sorry, but I, I actually went back and forth with another accountant about 26 years ago. We were writing articles, and he took he would he took aim at one of ours, and I took aim at one of his. And I just kept saying, if your planning involves the idea that your business activity is going to lose money, you should be looking at a different business activity. You should never enter a business activity where you lose money period. And I'll give an example. We had one guy who thought he was a genius because he made mark the market election, wrote off about a quarter of a million mm-hmm. in losses. The following year, the market turned around and he had to pay tax on a half a million dollars of that unrealized he, profit. That he never even made. I, here's how it works, guys. So if you hear Jeff and I get a little wacky on this, I'll give you a, a prime example. And I believe this was in 99 or 2000, but and I, I won't say what stock it was, but stock went up almost 600 bucks in about a month. And people were trading on this by selling leaps. Like I was part of a group where there's about a thousand people who had actually done this. They were all selling or buying leaps, which is gambling, right? And they all made, in some cases, seven figures. You were making $100,000 a day as this thing was just going up. It was going 30 bucks, 40 bucks, 50 bucks every day. And you just ran up right after the end of the year. So what they do is they market to the market and you're taxed as though you sold it. So here you have a million dollars of gain, short-term gain, which is taxed as ordinary income. And at this time, I think it was 39.6%. So you get hit with about a $400,000 tax bill. And then the following year, the next three months, it just went straight down and it it gave back all that gain. So here's all these people, and I remember this, who are sitting there with a $400,000 tax bill and they have stock that is worth less than the tax bill. And I don't know if you heard what Toby said when they reported the gain. They were in the highest tax bracket. Yep. But when you take a loss, you're no longer in that highest tax bracket. And you can't use it. If you like, you make money, make $100,000 in the market in uh, 2022, you get hit 
at whatever the capital gains rate is. So if it's short term, it's your highest bracket or your bracket, whatever, whatever the highest amount you're in. Mm-hmm. And then the next year you lose it all. They don't let you write off the hundred thousand dollars. They're going to let you write off 3000 of it and carry it forward unless you have other capital gains. That's how stinky it is. It's not a fair game. So I don't like mark to market. I don't like imposing those types of things on myself. And I know a lot of you guys are traders out there. Just uh, bear with me. I've seen thousands of returns that are doing these activities. And I can just tell you, nothing really ever comes good of doing that mark to market. And all these guys are out there like, you should make a mark to market. You should be a trader. They're all accountants that specialize in that so that they can handle the audits. And there's a lot of audits. So it sucks. So don't do it. Hey, here's something you should do though. You should come and visit us at the tax and asset protection event that Clint and I do about every other week. And if you want to learn about land trusts, LLCs, corporations, how they work together, a whole bunch of tax deductions for real estate investors, including how to accelerate depreciation, doing cost segs, and how to how to take bonus depreciation, how to do two EDA, how to do administrative offices for the home, things like that. This is the right place. Come on in; it's free. You can join us. Somebody says, "Are C corps limited by passive investment losses?" Yes. All right. That's why you're here. Answer your questions. Right. We have a second home property that we are renting as a short-term rental. It is titled under a Wyoming statutory trust, and we're already paying property taxes. Does a 571L form business property tax still apply to us? Yes, 571 does apply to short-term rentals. And the reason is because it's a trader business. It's business property. So this is a California tax that they, I think it's 1% or something that they impose on business properties, like your computer and stuff like that. But uh, if you are doing a short-term rental in your home, it's no longer, like it's an active trader business. So you would more than likely have a chunk of that home be considered business property, if not the whole amount. And uh, I just know that it's hotly contested and that most people won't pay it unless they actually have a city or a municipality, give them that form and say, hey, you owe it. I believe this form is actually called, per Elliott, the 571 STR. Apartment complexes, I should say, can also fall into this. Apartment complexes, probably hotels, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, somebody says, do you have any YouTube? Yes. Can you guys send out the YouTube link to Vivian so she can see where all the old uh, YouTube uh, or all of our old uh, Tax Tuesdays are? You'll find it in there. It'll say Tax Tuesday on the thumbnail. It always gives a couple of the things that we answered and then I'll put it over there. All right. And let us know if we're getting them any smarter as time goes by. Yeah. Some days I'm not sure. I feel like I'm backtracking <laughs> at this point. Like I'm forgetting so much stuff. Like, All right. Who can qualify for an HSA? I'm an active duty military member and I've been told I don't qualify because you don't. Sorry. Was that too <laughs> abrupt? All right. However, my wife still has co-pays based on her plan and I'll have to pay co-pays once I return. What do you think, Jeff? Rose? Okay. I, I, forgive me. I'm going to partially answer from my experience when I was in. So to qualify for an HSA, you have to have an HDHP, high deductible health plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's what, $2,500 minimum deduct- or deductible? Something like that. Yeah, something there's like a, that. There's a family deductible too. Yes. Yeah, I'll look this up. Maybe Elliot will come to our... Hey, Elliot, if you're rolling around out there, what are the limits or any any of our accounts? What are the limits on the high deductible plan? Now, when I was in the military, um, me, my spouse, my children were all covered by military health benefits. I could go to any hospital, any VA hospital. That includes my spouse, my wife, or my spouse and my wife. 
Uh, my spouse and my children. So I'm not sure that they were qualified just under that aspect. Now I know we have TRICARE and some other stuff. TRICARE, you automatically, you can't do an HSA. Right. And I think it's if, uh, oh, there's so somebody says $1,400, $2,800 for family. So it's $1,400 per individual, $2,800. That's a high deductible plan. That just means that's the minimum amount of your deductible to qualify. TRICARE, you're done. TRICARE, you're eligible to be covered, you're done. Your spouse is covered, you're eligible to be covered, you're done. And and the plan has to be deemed an HDHP because mm-hmm. my deductible is higher than that, but it's not a high deductible health plan. It's not considered one. Yeah, so you could ask your administrator uh, if you're a member of a plan. A lot of times, companies will also have an HSA that they contribute to for their employees. And uh, that's I know there's another question in here that I think that pertains to that. But if you have a high deductible health plan, your spouse is a member of something else, but you're not eligible to, eligible to be covered, then you can still do an HSA for yourself. The problem with military is that they allow the spouse to be covered. And I think that knocks them out. But here's another rub. Get a C-Corp. <laughs> like an HSA is cool because I get a deduction for the contribution. It grows tax-free. And if I use it for health, Anything health-related, co-pays, deductibles, things that aren't covered, anything for my health, non-taxable. I get over 65 and I have a huge war chest and I'm just never getting sick. Okay, then you you could take the money out and pay tax on it when you take it out. There's not even a penalty if you get over the, I think it's over 65. You're under 65, you pay tax and a 10% penalty. Still, it's a great, great thing. But if you're not qualified for HSA, you might want to look at a C-Corp because C-Corps can reimburse you. of your health medical, excuse me, your your, your medical, dental, and vision expenses, 100%. -hmm. So if you have a little C-Corp floating around out there that maybe maybe it's a partner in a a trading account, or maybe it's managing some rental real estate or whatever, you put that in there, then it can reimburse you 100% of your medical, dental, vision. Somebody says, I can't find prior tax Tuesdays on the YouTube channel. You'll see them, Gail, if you look at the videos, you have to look at the thumbnail and you'll see in the little bottom, it'll say Tax Tuesday. But it's usually the questions that are asked that are put as the title of the video. So you just kind of, every like you'll see them. They're, they're almost every week. And once you see, can tell, you're like, oh, there's the thumbnail. Oh, there it is. And like the bottom there, you'll see. You can always go find them. Uh, and if you want to, you just reach out to our staff. We'll, we'll, we'll point you right to them. Yeah, I'm uh, one of those that say, I can't find it. I can't name somebody goes, it's right there. It says Tax Tuesday, right? Yeah. So we don't put it in the title. It's on the thumbnail. So you have to look at the little thumbnail, um, which is way fun. Like they're the dumbest, the thumbnails that make us, they make us do goofy faces and stuff. Like, oh, market's going to end. What? And you're like, yep. For whatever reason, people click on those. If you just look like normal, they won't click on you. Unless is you're that fixed. why they call clickbait? Maybe the title has nothing to do with what you're talking about, but it's there's some on. people uh, right now. It's all doom and gloom. The debt ceiling, the debt. Ce- we're going to default. Wait a second. It's going to print more money. They're, just, they're all a bunch of knuckleheads. Uh, hey, we, we, we cut back our budget. You did not. That's like, that's like the kids saying, I'm not eating as much chocolate and candy. Some of us, so, so careful. Some of us are YouTube videos. That describes myself. All right. Next one. I have an HSA with my W-2 job that I'm maxing out. So it sounds like you have a high deductible plan with an employer that also has an HSA component. Can I open an additional HSA with my LLC business? HSAs share 
quite a bit in common with IRAs and that they have the same deadline, April 15th, to make their contribution by. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also have a limitation that is for all IRAs or all HSAs. So what we say, the HSA limitation is about 7,300 for a family. Yeah, it's, uh, this year it's 70, yeah, right around 7,300. So like an IRA, I can open up 20 IRAs, but I'm still limited to that $7,000 contributions. Yep. HSAs work the same way. I'm limited to how much I can contribute to all HSAs. So if you're already maxing out, I wouldn't bother. You're going to have an administrative fee with your new HSA. Um, save the money. Just keep contributing to your employer. Yeah, sounds like it's also pretty You nice. don't need an LLC business. So let me just put it this way. The HSA is something I could set up. I have one. I just set it up. And I think I'm eligible to do another HSA through the employer, but I, it's my firm. So it's like, oh, I'll just put this over here. That's that's all you do. It's an individual account. You get a little deduction and, uh, and, and, all is, uh, and all is great. You just keep accumulating. And then you can invest in it. Mm-hmm. I did some risky investments in mine and it popped. And I was just kind of laughing because I was like, I would never would have invested in that. I was, was I under like a normal time horizon? But I'm thinking, eh, 20 years. See what this does. Roll some dice. And, uh, and sometimes it goes, great. And then you're sitting here. Oh, there's a bunch of money sitting in this account. So if I get sick, there's money there. It's not a bad feeling. It's a great feeling. Yeah, it doesn't matter how big that pop is as long as you're using it for medical expenses. Yep. It can be $2 million. It can be $2 trillion. It doesn't really matter. The end of the day, if you don't use it for the medical, then there's going to be a tax uh, and it's going to be if I take it out. I don't really know what happens if you pass. I imagine it would be taxed to the recent, to the individual when they pass. I haven't really looked at that. I'm not sure. Yeah, but th- there will be a, hey, if you don't use it for the medical, there's going to be a tax consequence at some point. But it's nice to know that you have the money there if needed. And it's it's the triple threat. There's nothing else out there that that I get a deduction for. It grows tax-free and I get to use it tax-free. There's a lot of things where I could put money aside tax-deferred, like an IRA, but I'm going to pay tax on it in the future. Or I put money into a, a Roth. I don't get a tax deduction, but I'll never pay tax again. What they've done with the HSA is said, we're going to combine those two things. You're just never going to pay tax and you get a deduction. I don't know anything else out there that's quite like it. It's one of the best things you can have. So if you are you know, if, if, if you have health needs, this is what you do, especially if you're one of those people that tries to write off your medical expenses, but your 7.5% of your adjusted gross income prevents you from really getting any deduction. The HSA is what you should be doing. I should be putting money in, taking a deduction and using it for those health expenses. Voila, we just got a tax deduction and it's, in, in, in it, and it's just like that. And, and some people will use the argument that I, I never have any medical bills. Why would I want to do this? Yep. You will. Somebody just said, uh, death, uh, the HSA goes to a spouse. It could be assumed like an inherited IRA. Great. No tax. Makes sense. If it goes to anyone else, it's taxed immediately. So bottom line, don't die or get really, really sick and spend it on whatever it is. There was a guy I read today that was spending $2 million a year on, on anti-aging. $2 million. That's like great reason to have an HSA. <laughs> if I got that kind of money, I'm not sure I care about how I look. <laughs> That's probably how he feels. Maybe he's trying to be immortal. We all get a little crazy. So to clarify, it's more beneficial to have an HSA or to use my C-Corp accountability plan. It gets you to the same place, Nita, because in a, in a, uh, in a C-Corp, I get to pay you, deduct it, and I don't have to pay tax on it. So it's, 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 it's zero. I got a write-off and I got to use it for health and I didn't pay any tax. The HSA, 
I get a deduction, but it can grow in the meantime and grow bigger and not pay tax. You can't do that with a C-Corp. C-Corp, you just park the money in there and it makes 10 million bucks. It's going to pay 21% on that 10 million. And then it's going to, you know, it's not going to really be paying out, hopefully that much. But we do have clients that have reimbursements. What's the biggest one you've seen for the medical reimbursement in our group um, per year? I want to say 30,000. Yeah. 25, 30,000. I was just going to say that we have some clients that have kids mm-hmm. or dependents or they're caring for an elderly parent and they have sizable uh, expenses and allows them to write that off out of their company tax-free. So I think that's a good thing. All right. Anderson made me an entity as a C-Corp. I always put monthly money in uh, from my personal account to pay monthly business expenses. In other words, it's not making enough money. So they're putting money in every month. They put $7,000 of startup money. So that's how they funded this thing. They put an initial lump sum of 7,000 bucks by a loan or as stock. They said, I don't know. Anyway, they finally made $4,000 and they want to take out the initial seven grand and uh, they want to leave the 4,000 I made. So really what they're saying is, I just want to take 4,000 or I want to take seven grand out. And Mm -hmm. I put seven grand and I've also put other money. How do I legally and tax-friendly take the $7,000 back that I need for my personal reimbursement? So when you put the initial $7,000 in, it was most likely a loan, especially if it was an LLC, taxes a C-Corp. If it's a true C-Corp, you need to put a little fraction of that $7,000 to stock. We're talking like $100. Mm-hmm. The rest is a loan that the, that corporation owes back to you. Mm-hmm. So which is no tax. No tax. So you can pull that money back out anytime you want. Yep. And tax-free. There are no tax implications at all. But I'm going to throw a curveball at you. Oh, no. If you made 4,000 bucks, you're going to owe tax on that 4,000. If you are owed money because you've been funding this thing, it needs to reimburse you for things like computer, your cell phone, medical dental vision, whatever. It needs to reimburse you for an administrative office in your home, 280A. It owes you money to reimburse you because you've been flipping the bill. That is a deduction that goes against the $4,000 of income. You can always give back the money that you contributed to a company tax-free. You can just have return of capital. Hey, I put $100,000 in a company. A few years later, it's making money and I want my $100,000 back tax-neutral. I do not pay tax on the 100,000 that it gives me back because my basis is 100. Once I once it starts giving me more money than I put in, now I'm going to have taxable events. Period. Unless unless I'm at risk and I and I and I share some loss and then we will get into all that. That's it's another topic, but on this particular case, you can get your 7 grand back without incurring any sort of tax event. Somebody asked uh previously, can you open an HSA if you have an employer sponsored plan? Yes but your limitation is the annual amount, right? Anything else on this? Uh, No, it's really important. And there's a big difference between C-Corps and S-Corps when I give my company money. On an S-Corp, I want it to be a capital contribution because, Mm -hmm. again, I can distribute that money back out to myself left and right. I do not want to do that in the C-Corp because if I make it a capital contribution, the only way to get that money back is through a dividend, which may or may not be taxable to you, or by taking it out through salary. So mm-hmm. it is important how you designate that initial contribution. Mm-hmm. And one other thing is, if you're losing money in a C-Corp, here's the big one. 
if you have a loan, you're going to, you're not going to get any tax benefit out of it, but you need to contribute all that in exchange for stock Mm -hmm. before you dissolve the C Corp, because you can write off up to $50,000 as a uh, ordinary loss. If for whatever reason you lose money. So if you're plugging along and the C Corp never makes it, and then it goes out of business, make sure that you don't have a bunch of loans to the company, make sure you contribute that in exchange for stock. So you can take a small business stock loss. Mm-hmm. That's what's that? 1222? 12, 1244. 1244 stock. There we go. So let's say you screw up and don't make that switch over mm-hmm. to stock. You have capital loss now. You now have capital loss. You can still deduct it, but it could take a long time to recover that. $3,000 a year. Let's see what else we got. So this says, can we promote this on our blog? Yes, of course you can. We do not care. Just share the good news. All right. Speaking of good news, somebody was just asking about YouTube. Here's another one. Yeah, feel free. Subscribe. Uh, I love people being on YouTube. For whatever reason, it brings me an immense amount of joy to stand in front of chalkboards and dry erase boards and computer monitors and pontificate. So uh, anyway, oh, that was it. There's no more questions. What the heck happened, Jeff? And it's 401. That's almost on time. So, uh, yeah, somebody's like, Sherry, Sherry, this is weird. You know, when we started doing these, some of you guys were there. We didn't have, like, we would just answer like 20, 30 questions. They were a little bit long. We, well, we, we were still going at 530. Yeah. We, we may have been going to two, three and a, yeah, a long time, which is weird that people would hang out and listen to stuff. Like we would, uh, there was not uncommon to have a thousand people on listening to those things. And I was like, how are you? doing that like like i like listening to taxes but even i would like maybe you're in the gym or something but anyway somebody had a question this is a really long question but i think they'll probably need to put that in the q a and uh, speaking of the q a elliot jared ross sergey tanya troy i know there was ander i know there was jen there's dana there's a bunch of others are answering questions and they've answered over 130 questions that are detailed questions, not little ones, detailed questions. So thank you for my team for doing that. You guys rock. But I know that there's some open questions and they're answering those. So even though we are at the end, I want to say that we will stay on until we've answered all your questions. Number two, if you have a question and you go, dang it, I wish I'd asked that. Do not worry. Send it into Tax Tuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com. We will answer that. Uh, somebody says, when are you going to UK and Spain? On Saturday. Yes, I love traveling. And uh, it's a lot of fun. And some of you guys don't know, but I went to school in Madrid when I was in law school for a little while, which I don't remember much of it, to be honest with you, because they have really good wine in Spain. Went all over the place. And I learned a little bit about the European economic community at the time before it became the EU. And uh, just how insane that was, that whole process was. It was a lot of fun. But anyway, hopefully, I, hopefully you guys get to travel around too. I think it's a lot of fun. And, uh, and if you could mix a little bit of uh, business in there, then sometimes your travel can net you some nice deductions, which we will go over another day. So that's something you guys should be asking is how do I write off my, if I'm going to go to Spain, how do I write off some of that trip? And I can do that. Somebody says, appreciate the outreach. Daughter goes to Newcastle University in the UK studying law shipping. Shipping law. Way to go, Brian. I have a brother-in-law that's in uh, Bristol, and I go to London a lot and have a lot of friends there. You should be really proud of your kid if they're going international. That's uh, pretty extraordinary. 
just to be away from home. But uh, it's also really cool to go over there and get a different perspective. It's fun to travel. And then it makes me glad every time I come home. I like American-sized stuff, too. Europe is great, but there's <laughs> we like our space in the U.S. <laughs> Let's be real. And they don't have a lot of ice. Like The U.K. is like, where's the ice? I've never been to Spain, but I kind of like the music. You'd love Barcelona. You'd love Mallorca. Go out into the, in the Mediterranean, but the whole country is beautiful. Everybody's so nice there, too. Um, all right. We, we got off somehow. You guys, thanks for joining us on Tax Tuesday. If you have an open question, just hang tight. We will get an answer to you. If you have questions in the meantime, send them in at Tax Tuesday to Anderson Advisors. And thanks, Jeff, who is an absolute beast for being here today. If you guys weren't listening earlier, go back and watch the video. You'll understand what I'm talking about. Jeff, thank you for being back. We missed you. And You're welcome. Uh, we're, we're, we're glad to have Jeffro back in the house. We call him Jeffro. You can call him Jeffro too. And we will see you in two weeks. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 